The people of Egypt recently chose Muslim Brotherhood candidate Mohamed Morsi as their next president, and he promptly promised to be a president of all Egyptians. But can such promises be believed? And what kinds of discrimination do religious minorities in other Middle Eastern countries face? We're going to talk about that with two guests. Omar Boom is an assistant professor at the School of Middle Eastern and North African Studies at the University of Arizona. And Sabah Mahmoud is an associate professor of social and cultural anthropology at the University of California, Berkeley. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having me. So let's start by looking at the current political situation in, in the Middle East, what the casual observer knows as Arab Spring or the series of uprisings that we've seen across the region. What has that meant for religious minorities? Yes, I mean, I think it d differs from country to country. Let's just take the example of Christians in Egypt. The Coptic Christians are the dominant Christian population. They refused uh, European protections historically and said, we are Muslim by country and, and only Christian by religion. They suffered a series of discriminations which only ex escalated under the Mubarak regime. Now, as you say, that you have the Muslim Brotherhood that won the presidential election, and it's often touted in the press as being very uh, negative. To my study in the last 20 years shows the, the question is really open. We do not know how Coptic Christians would be treated. The Mubarak regime itself was very discriminatory against Copts when sectarian violence uh, began to erupt against them. Omar? If you look at Morocco and Tunisia, for instance, the Tunisian case is still uncertain, despite the fact that the government has promised to protect the rights of Jews, given the fact that there is a rise of Salafis in, in Tunisia. So if you look at the main religious minority in North Africa, which still are Jews, there are about less than 1,000 Jews who live in Tunisia, between 3,000 and 5,000 Jews who live in Morocco, their situation is way much better than, than other minorities in other parts of, of the Middle East. Algeria is a different case because we really don't know exactly the exact number. Religious minorities in general are not visible as much as in Morocco and Tunisia. I would like to just ask what concern you have about Islamist parties. Um, coming to power in the Middle East? I think when you look at the Islamic parties, their vision of a state and nation is largely described in terms of religious identity. Overall, what you see in the case of Tunisia and Morocco, for instance, there is some a trend towards accommodation. The first gesture of the Islamist prime minister, who was nominated by the king, Abdel Ilaben Kiran, was to meet the head of the Jewish community of Morocco the next day after he was elected, and uh, Serge Berdugu. So, so that's a gesture that was very important not only for the community, but also for to the outside world. The Islamists are very meticulous, trying to make sure that they do the right thing because their image to the outside the world communities is also very important. There are those I know who are still suspicious that th these are merely gestures and that um, behind them... Um, there isn't going to be any real enforcement or backup. But that that's genuine, and I think we have to start with that and recognize that. But at the same time, we also have to see what the open-ended political process is and what it's going to look like. If we just simply say that by virtue of the fact that these are Islamic groups that ha are coming into power, therefore... For example, the democratic nature of these of these elections should be annulled, and uh, instead, for example, there is an open possibility that the military government in in Egypt will use.
use precisely this kind of language to say that we should continue to remain in power. That would be a very unfortunate outcome because if you remember in 1992 in Algeria, a very similar kind of argument was made. Islamists came into power and their elections were annulled and instead the military dictatorship took over and then there was a civil war. It's unclear how it's going to go. It's mm -hmm. going to be determined through political participation. And civil and political participation is actually going to be good for the minorities because they're going to be able to come out and actually argue on the basis of civil and political rights rather than some internal deals they cut with the military authoritarian governments that have been in place in the region. Omar, I want to go to you and talk about how religious minorities, Jews, Christians, uh, and, and other perhaps Muslim sects, how are they portrayed in the Muslim world, in, in media, like TV or moody, movies? What kind of uh, image is projected out to the mainstream Muslim world? This is an interesting question. Actually, this is part of uh, the research I'm doing in Morocco by looking at four generations of Muslims and how they perceive Jews. And what you see, basically, there is a shift. There is a huge shift as far as perception because of this, the absence of daily interactions these days between Jews and Muslims, you tend to see more negative attitudes compared to the older generation that lived with Jews or Christians that um, had daily interactions, not only at the level of neighborhood, but also throughout the cities. In this age of media, even the, the, the minority of Jews and Christians that are left these days in Middle Eastern countries, you don't see that much interaction going on. And I, if I may just also add that I think we have to really think about what we mean by minorities in the Middle East. We also have to think of the Shiite minority. Uh, the persecution of Shiite minorities in the Middle East has only risen in the last 20 years. For example, in, in Iraq, where the main line of fracture is between Shia and Sunni. Similarly, in Lebanon, the main line of fracture is between Shias and Sunnis. The Maronite Christian community, which is a very important political demographic in Lebanon is actually divided. Saudi Arabia, which is a very important U.S. ally and in one of the most totalitarian monarchies in the region, has treated its Shiite minority very poorly. The Kingdom of Bahrain, which is right next to Saudi Arabia, actually has a tiny Sunni elite minority that rules the country and a, and a majority Shiite population who are, again, very poorly treated on the model of Saudi Arabia when they rose up for civil and political rights following the examples in Tunisia and in Egypt. The monarchy in Bahrain, with the help of Saudi monarchy, brutally put down that uprising. Well, this also raises the question of, are there any laws or regulations that protect religious minorities in, in Middle Eastern countries? I mean, what are they? How effective are they? Well, they vary. Yes. There, there's yes. a yeah. huge uh, yeah. variety of models uh, in place. Yeah. Lebanon is one of the most uh, religiously diverse societies in the Middle East. So first of all, Lebanon has over 17 recognized religious sects. The primary ones are Christian and Muslim, but within the Christians, there is a huge diversity. There is the Maronite Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Armenian Church, and so on. Now, what's interesting is that the parliament and the socioeconomic structure gives proportionate representation to all the different religious sects. The office of the president always goes to a Maronite Christian. The prime minister has to be a Sunni Muslim. And the speaker of the parliament is a Shia Muslim. And the national legislature itself is divided equally between Christians and Muslims. Omar. I think you have to distinguish between not only countries in what we call North Africa, 
and the heartland of the Middle East, Sabah is completely right as far as that point. But yes, there are rights. There are rights that are written not only through the constitution of, the, of these states, but also through civil courts. But the enforcement of these rights is what remains to be done, I think. What role, if any, should the United States take to promote religious freedom in countries with Islamist governments? I think one of the most important things to remember here is that the U.S. should play a role not in regards to Islamist governments, but also the non-Islamist governments have violated the, the freedoms of both ethnic and religious minorities. Now, Saudi Arabia technically is a monarchy, and you do not think of it as an Islamist state, but it is one of the biggest violators of mm-hmm. all forms of religious freedom. One of the things that, that the United States must do is assure these governments that are its allies actually do something about religious freedom. Now, the sanctions that should come against Saudi Arabia are consistently uh, waived uh, because it's because of oil, economic interests, whereas Iran continues to be under sanction and Sudan continues to be under the sanction. So I think there are double standards. If U.S. Yeah. is going to do anything, the first thing is going to have to resolve is to be consistent. Omar? I, I think there is uh, what I've, I've seen, some mutual collaboration between different governments. There's a lot of things going on right through the State Department to create a dialogue about the, the importance of accepting diversity within, within these societies. But it has to be nurtured, I think, and, and it starts at the level of, of schools. I think that's a key point there because you can create laws, you, you can uh, put all kind of legal institutions, but I think if you don't have a civil society where kids learn at an early stage to respect a Christian or a Jew or a Baha'i or a Shia or a Sunni within a classroom, you're going to have, you're going to have major problems. Omar Boom is an assistant professor at the School of Middle Eastern and North African Studies at the University of Arizona. Zaba Mahmoud is an associate professor of social and cultural anthropology at the University of California, Berkeley. Thank you both for talking with us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. You've been listening to Religious Minorities in the Middle East. Visit us on the web at americaabroad.org to sign up for our monthly podcast and to hear our past programs. You can follow us on Facebook, or send us a tweet at America underscore abroad. Religious Minorities in the Middle East was produced by Joseph Brody, Nadine Shaker, Emily Parker, and the team at Tunisia Live, AC Valdez, and Jonathan Zinger. Additional production help was provided by Flan Williams. Steve Martin is our Director of Broadcasting and Station Relations. Four-Piece Suit composed our theme music. I'm Catherine Lamfer, and this is America Abroad from Public Radio International. Support for this program comes from the Luce Foundation. Support also comes from The American Interest, a magazine devoted to illuminating America's global role. And from this station and public radio international stations nationwide. It's also made possible in part by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. PRI Public Radio International.